Welcome to LNG TV, bringing you dynamic conversations, thought-provoking reflections and inspiring stories from the leaders, pioneers and change agents spearheading growth across gas and LNG markets worldwide and shaping the transition to a cleaner, more sustainable and prosperous global energy landscape of tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. Frontiers and Pioneers, in association with Sempra LNG. Hello and welcome to LNG TV. I'm Ali Vance and as always, I'm joined by industry expert Will Dawson for the latest episode of Frontiers and Pioneers. And Will, who have we got as today's guest? We are honoured to welcome Bobby Quintos, a decorated military veteran with over 30 years energy projects and operational experience, spanning upstream through to downstream. Having held senior leadership positions with BP in the US, Asia and Middle East, he is the founder and managing director of Delta Offshore Energy, the developer of a pioneering LNG to power project in the Bac Lieu, southern Vietnam. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. There you are. Thank you for, for coming on LNG TV. Yes, hi. Greetings from Houston. Bobby, lots to discuss. Um, but first of all, let us start with Delta Offshore Energy. You're developing Vietnam's first LNG to power project, and I understand to be the first 100% uh, privately financed energy project in the country. Um, last year, we understand that there was lots of positive progress made. It would be great for you to give us an update to the project and where you're at, and hopefully when you'll be able to achieve an FID. Yes, thank you for that. So, as you know, we are developing a 3.2 gigawatt onshore power plant with an LNG terminal offshore, off the province of Bakliu in the Mekong Delta. Uh, we have a very good team led by co-founder Ian Wan in Hanoi, and they're leading the negotiations right now for the power purchase agreement with EVN. EVN is the national utility company of the Vietnam government. So we, uh, we've had several meetings. We started the negotiation process in December, and we're hoping that it should all conclude with a signed PPA by at the latest at April this year. Uh, at the same time, we've also run an RFP, a request for proposal for a gas sales agreement tender for LNG supply. Uh, we sent that out on uh, September last year during Gas Tech. And we went from 40 interested parties to 29 non-binding bids. And now we're down to our final handful of uh, six, six, about six or seven LNG suppliers that are now working on their firm bids, their binding bids. We're hoping to conclude that also along with the PPA around the same time, because as you know, it has to be back to back. We have to have the LNG supply back by the power purchase agreement. So having said that, we've done a lot of the engineering already. We have a, a large consortium of Bechtel for the onshore EPC. Uh, we're using GE gas powered turbines and 9HA.02s. We have Stena designing our LNG terminal, and we have McDermott doing our offshore feed. Uh, McDermott will also be doing all the execution for the offshore installation of the LNG terminal in 2023. We will uh, we have JP Morgan as our mandated lead arranger, and we are now working towards FID by the end of this year. Uh, our COD date will be 2024. Uh, We'll do one block at a time, one phase at a time. So 750, 750, 750. Altogether, all four gas turbines, which should be online by the end of 2024 or early 2025. 
And in terms of Vietnam, Bobby, just uh, more generally, how important is LNG to the country? And, and likewise, how important is Vietnam to, to the LNG industry? Well, everybody's focusing on Vietnam because it is uh, a high growth and a high potential country. Uh, it's got one of the fastest growing GTPs in the region. It's a very stable country you know, compared to some of their neighbors. And uh, it does have a very young population. So currently, many of their uh, power plants are fed from offshore gas reserves. A lot of these gas reserves are actually reaching the end of their commercial lives, which is a big problem for them. Uh, if they don't do any more drilling offshore, then it'll be stranded. So uh, having an LNG terminal gives them the option of bringing in natural gas from other parts of the world where they're not, uh, they're not uh, you know, beholden to the offshore gas fields. There is a big issue for, there's a big reason why they're not drilling offshore. It's a big geopolitical reason uh, with the Chinese incursions in the South China Sea. Because of that, a lot of the oil majors have left the area um, because nobody wants to drill in contested waters. So as far as answering your question about the, how important is the LNG terminal for Vietnam, it's very, very important. They have no other option but to bring in LNG if there's not gonna be any offshore gas uh, drilling for them. And as you say, clearly it's a growth market. Um, there are other projects in, in different stages of development in the country. Um, what do you see as the key factors um, to being successful in the region? Uh, for, for our project, one of the key factors is we are an independent power producer. We will be an IPP. We will be a privately owned company operating in Vietnam. This is all brought about because of what's called the new investment law. In the, in the region uh, that was implemented around 2015 by the government. This was written to encourage uh, foreign direct investment into the country and to, to streamline and make their, uh, their, their electricity generation more, more optimized and more efficient. And in terms of developing the project and developing Delta Offshore Energy as a company, um, I imagine it's incredibly important to build a strong shared vision um, and build a strong network of partners that you've already alluded to. How have you done that and how important is that for your future success, do you believe? Uh, partially it was at the request of the Vietnamese government. When we started uh, about two years ago, um, I, I want to point out that the power development plans revision seven actually had the, the 3.2 gigawatt facility in Bac Liu as a coal-fired power plant. Now, because of climate change and the, the move away from, from dirty fuel, they switched it over to natural gas. The, that was one caveat. The other one was that they wanted to bring in American investors into the country. They really, they really like the Americans and they want to use uh, the American influence to counterbalance the, the Chinese influence in the region. So because of that, we, we used our leverage with American companies like the Bechtels and McDermott's that I mentioned and the GEs uh, through my past relationships when I was working with them with B BP. So it was easy enough to pick up the phone and, and convince them that this is a good idea and that Vietnam is a fast growth country. So that's how we basically built out the consortium for this project. And you mentioned the RFP for um, potential suppliers of LNG for the terminal. Um, mm. You know, as an asset of national importance, what are the key factors that you are considering when looking at who you will be partnering with? 
So this is a 25 year PPA. So it's long-term. The market is very short-sighted. They like spot markets. They like fluctuations and, you know, it's, it's not the way to run a business if it's going to be there for, for the 25 years. So what we wanted to do and part of what we're considering when we're, as we negotiate these contracts and as we do our, our financial model and our, uh, on the gas sales, uh, basically is we want to balance out and use both the oil index and um, the Henry Hub index. So that way we try to remove some of that volatility that you see in the market when oil prices shoot up or, you know, then the prices go up because it's it's a percentage wise to the oil price, right? Like the Brent or, or uh, you know, the Henry Hub index where it's probably more stable because there's a lot more supply coming out of the United States. So we want to have a combination of both indexes in our, in our, at the, at the end of the, at the end of our exercise when we select their suppliers. So it won't just be one, it'll be one, uh, it'll be probably two or three suppliers that we're going to be contracting with and breaking up the, the three point, the three million tons per year requirement that we have. You're talking about a, a massive project here, you know, millions of, of dollars worth. Um, but what does it actually mean for the men and women on the streets in, in Vietnam, for those people in that country? Well, the reason that the Vietnamese actually selected this location for us is because they want to grow the southern part of the country. Uh, the Mekong Delta is, is primarily agricultural, a lot of uh, aquaculture, shrimp farms. Uh, you know, the, the center of gravities are the cities, the large cities of uh, Ho Chi Minh and Saigon or, and, or um, and Hanoi. Uh, so they wanted, they wanted to start looking at developing the south a bit more, uh, eradicating poverty, you know, bringing the cost of living up, raising the cost of living in those areas higher. And the way to do that is, of course, is to bring electricity that's, that's, that's affordable and that's reliable and to develop the industry there. They, they do want to look at bringing, uh, you know, industrial centers down in the south so they can, so they need reliable power for that. And with the unlocking of emerging markets being of critical importance to the broader and global natural gas and LNG industries, um, you know, and of course, indeed, for potentially the emerging markets themselves, you know, do you see other emerging markets similar to Vietnam that you would view as kind of key markets moving forward? Yes, actually, there there's a lot of countries right now watching us. Uh, I've been I've been getting pinged quite a bit from from my relationships in different countries. Uh, Vietnam is very unique because uh, because of their government, because they are a, a communist government and a one party government. They can make decisions faster versus Indonesia, for example, or the Philippines, uh, both places where we've looked at different projects. Uh, so because of that, we've been more successful in Vietnam than elsewhere. However, there is a large demand for uh, for electricity in the region. Uh, it is, it's been identified uh, by the United Nations as Southeast Asia is the, probably the fastest growing sector in, in the globe population wise. Uh, again, the same reasons as Vietnam, they're very young, young population and very fast growth. So I, I can see a lot of this being trying try to replicate in, in different parts of uh, different parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, Indonesia particularly is very interested because uh, because of the archipelagic type of uh, conditions where it's easier to do LNG uh, through transportation by LNG. More broadly, uh, the conversation at the moment is 
around the energy transition. I think that that conversation has been heightened and accelerated by the pandemic. Um, as someone with um, an interest not only in gas and LNG, but also renewable energy sources, what do you see as the major opportunities and sort of potential obstacles for the industry in making further progress? Probably infrastructure, uh, the lack of regasification infrastructure. That those are one of the things with, that we're trying to resolve there. Um, there's obviously a lot of liquefaction, uh, and most of it is going through mature markets like Europe, for instance, and Japan, Korea, China. Uh, the lack of infrastructure in the Southeast Asia region is probably one of the challenges that everybody has to consider when trying to enter that market. So that's uh, you know that that's part of the reason we went into Vietnam is because we we identified that they do need an energy terminal there in order to import it. So uh, building an energy terminal is not an easy feat, especially where we are, where it's a very shallow water. However, if anybody's trying to get into it, that segment in the Southeast Asia, that's, that is the number one challenge for them. And Bobby, I'd like to now touch on um, your, your thoughts on leadership and, and career, career development. Um, what do you think has been, what are the most important leadership lessons that you've learned throughout your career or, or perhaps valuable advice that you've received? It sounds cliche, but failure is probably the best teacher. So, uh, you know, there's many parts in my life where I've, I've, failed. Uh, but the, the key there is not to give up. It's the perseverance part of it. It sounds really, really cliche, you know, success is achieved through, um, through effort and determination and, and perseverance, essentially those are the simple things you, you can't give up on your, your vision and you just got to keep working through it because it's too thick and thin. You're going to get a lot of no's, uh, for, for Delta to be where we are now, you, we have many people, many, funds, many groups that we've approached that said, no, like you had to work it, work it a little bit more and work a little bit more until finally somebody said yes. And now the same people who said no before are now knocking on the door saying, hey, remember us? We're, we're still interested. So, uh, you know, that, that if you look at the history of, of successful or, or the, you know, the lives of successful people, I like reading a lot of biographies. You can see that there's a similar pattern there. They've failed, they've been rejected, but they've persevered. So that's, uh, if anybody's listening out there that's interested in that, that's basically the, the game plan. And I guess that links to my next question about, I mean, you've been so, um, perseverance and, and failure are so important to being an entrepreneur, um, which you certainly have in, um, in bucket loads, entrepreneurial spirits. Um, where do you think this comes from? Well, I, I didn't actually start out as, uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, I've had a successful career in, in corporate oil and gas with BP. Uh, one of the challenges, though, when I was working inside BP is, is it became such a large organization that uh, there were many things that I said to myself, you know, I would never do this if I ran the company or if I owned the company. These are things that I would eliminate, and this is how I could run things more efficiently. So it finally got to the point where I said, okay, I'm going to run my own company. So, so there was good and bad about that. Uh, the good thing is I've removed all of those layers that I thought were not necessary for the decision-making process. But the bad thing is uh, if you don't have a big company like BP behind you, it's, uh, it's a bit more of a struggle to, to get things going, to get that inertia moving forward. So, uh, so I was, I guess you can say I'm an accidental entrepreneur. Interesting thought. So, you know, you're taking lessons 
from and experiences from your major experience with the likes of BP and, and clearly a military background, what are the things that you were absolutely, you know, you felt were critical to embed within your organizational culture? A lot of it is just having timelines, having timelines and deadlines to follow. So that's what we were pushing the most with the team now in Delta. When we receive the investment registration certificate, we actually have a timeline to, to develop and to deliver our, our COD, our commercial operations day. And it's a very, very tight timeline. So uh, again, a lot of the things in the region is losing face too. You don't want to lose face. You, when you make a commitment, you want to make sure that you're, you hold up to it. It's a, it's a it's a cultural thing over there. So by having deadlines and timelines and pushing the team, it, it keeps people focused in the team. And by streamlining decision processes, it, it makes it faster. And, and people, you know, people do get frustrated if, if leadership takes a long time to decide anything. You know, if they have to go through steering committees and committees and other committees, people waiting, ready, getting ready to do the work are just sitting there waiting and twiddling their thumbs in. It's not very good for morale. So by streamlining decision processes, it's, uh, it's the way to go. Um, as, a, as a former military man, you'll be obviously familiar with the, the rushing to wait. Right. <laughs> but also, um, you, yeah. you know, I th thinking of entrepreneurialism, the SAS's motto of who dares win, um, you know, does that mean anything to you personally? And are there any other sort of mottos that you think of as uh, so you reflect on? Yeah, um, SAS, I know a few, a few friends in the SAS uh, coming from also the special ops community in, in the U.S. military and the U.S. Navy. Uh, I have a funny stories because when I, when I finished with my tour in Iraq, I actually went back for BP because they already knew I was okay getting shot at. Uh, to help develop the the Romela field, and you know we were still in the war war climate, so we had a lot of SAS former SAS basically bodyguards driving me around, and they used to rib me quite a bit actually because they know I was a Navy guy also in Baghdad, so a lot of uh, a lot of uh, friendly competition I should say there, and but but at the end of the day, uh, it's it, it's a it's a characteristic I think for folks in SAS and, and the special ops community to, to take chances, you know, as much as reasonable as possible, to take chances in order to achieve your mission. You know, that's why dare to win. If you don't take chances, you shouldn't, you have, you shouldn't even be there, you know, anywhere because you'll, you know, it, it won't work. You, you, and, and, and the SAS's cases or special ops cases, you, you'll get killed. Um, again, with the waiting part of it, you know, waiting in the military and, and combat situations is never good because that means you're a sitting target, right? And so moving forward, daring to win, taking chances. Uh, again, one, one of my other favorite mottos is uh, fortune favors the bold. So but basically what that implies is that you're, you're ready. You have to be ready either through training or through planning. So when the time comes, you're ready to jump. You know, you're bold enough to take that step to, to achieve your mission. Now, Bobby, here on LNG TV, we like to, to get to know our guests a little better. So um, describe your perfect weekend then away from work. And, and I guess, how do you manage that work-life balance? Um, I haven't had too many weekends away from work. <laughs> but uh, 
perfect weekend. Just uh, getting out in, the, in nature, going camping, for instance, or uh, when I lived in Indonesia, I did a lot of scuba diving. So that's uh, great to see that. Even just reading a good book and turning off your phone is, is a good thing or, or preparing a good meal. I, I love I love eating. Part of the what I do when I travel is I try all different types of foods and even street foods just to learn the culture even more because I think you learn the culture through the language and through what they eat. So you touch on trying on trying lots of different foods in different um, countries and embracing the cultures i'm sure that's quite a large part of um, your job of see you're, you're traveling all the time is there one experience one place that stands out for you um i can name a good and a bad <laughs> yeah go on then <laughs> that, right uh the bad one was when i was in a war in nigeria and i got food poisoning i was, I was, I was gonna really... say it's gonna avoid it's gonna um have street <laughs> food in this story <laughs> we yeah, don't want any a... more details <laughs> That's uh, that's that was memorable in a negative sense, but right. uh, in a positive <laughs> sense, again, one of the best places I've dove in was uh, the Bandanera Islands in Indonesia. Uh, so at that at that location, we were diving with hammerhead sharks in uh, forty meters of water. So that was really fun. You're making us all very jealous with all this no traveling. <laughs> the fact we haven't traveled for the last year or so. It's a it's a lovely thought. Yeah, absolutely inspirational. Being you know unable to travel and on the sort of notion of inspiration. Is there sort of one individual that has stood out to you as being um, the most inspiring that you've ever worked with or indeed perhaps maybe had the biggest impact or influence on you and your career? As far as work with recently, um, I probably the, the two generals that I worked with in Iraq were quite inspiring, General Odierna and General Austin. You know, the, the challenges of, of, of having, they, they had at least 500,000 people in, on in country that they had to manage basically uh, in difficult situations. So watching them, briefing them, uh, you know, seeing how they took my recommendations and uh, implemented it, I thought that was that was learning for me. That was a very good learning process for me and how they manage all of that. Good folks, different personalities. General Ordierno is more more your typical army gung-ho type and general austin was more of the pensive type uh more deliberate in making his decisions but they both achieved their mission so those two folks are i think for me more inspirationally working wow. with uh, yeah, ha half a million person organization is is quite unbelievable um in terms of sort of yourself bobby and thinking about wanting to have an impact both on a personal and professional level um What's the impact that you hope that you are going to have been able to make? Well, I'm hoping that once this power plant is up and running, that I, I actually witness the growth of the region. Uh, you know, the way it is right now, again, that part of the re of Vietnam is, is somewhat behind the other the cities. Uh, there's the poverty eradication would be good. And also it'd be good to see that once once we have this power plant up and running that it's copied in other locations where it's needed like laos and cambodia and indonesia where you help with the poverty eradication there as well so it's it's the first step uh, but i hope once the step is made then it'll be easier to take that second and third and fourth step brilliant thank you so much bobby well look all the best to you and to uh, delta offshore energy and i hope that uh, your project uh, goes very well in the, the future years 
Um, but that is all we have for you. Thank you for joining us on LNG TV and on Frontiers and Pioneers. Until next time, it's goodbye from Will and myself. Frontiers and Pioneers, in association with Sempra LNG.